If you have a Bible or a device, we're going to be in Acts 1. Um, we're going to finish the first chapter of Acts today. We've been working through it the last few weeks as we started a series at the new year um, on a church leaning forward in a world upside down. Wanted to walk through the book of Acts and how it could be helpful for you today. This is going to be a good passage, I think. It's been helpful for me. Interestingly, a little piece of trivia you never cared about is a few years ago, I was talking to some Christian publishers about a book, and one of the things that they were telling me is that the most written on topic, because the most purchased topic in a Christian bookstore was on, were on books that talked about what God's will was for our life. They said, basically, if you put on the cover of a book, God's will for your life, how you can know what God's will, you're basically just printing money. People will buy it. It's the number one most consumed item in a Christian bookstore is what is God's will for my life. We, as people, we simply want the blueprints that God has written for all of our days, what it will look like so that we don't make any mistakes. Nobody wants to make any mistakes. And, and the truth is, is God does have blueprints for our life. It sounds funny. David tells us in Psalm 139, stay where you're at in Acts, says in Psalm 139, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows the depth of your days. He knows what your whole life, no matter how you leave this world and enter another one, whether it's a car accident or you die in your sleep or Jesus just comes back or old age or whatever, he knows when that day is. He knows the exact time. He knows how you will populate every day between now and then. He tells us as much. And we know that even with the blueprint plans he has, the plans are good plans, Good, ultimately very good. In Jeremiah 29, we say, and it's important that you know how to read this, by the way. Another, another good reason you should go to this class on how to read the Bible if you don't know how. Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. This does not mean that God's ultimate plans for you are to have a great Tuesday, and if Tuesday is not a great Tuesday, then somehow you are not in the will of God. That's not what that's talking about. Jeremiah is talking to a people that are knocking on the door of being exiled, right? He is a prophet that is bringing a stinging rebuke to a rebellious nation, but at the same time telling them that God's disposition towards that nation is good for a great future, because see, God is gonna bring them out of exile into home. And that's important for you and me because we have to read Jeremiah with a redemptive lens, looking over the whole arc of history, and it tells you and me that we might have a bad Tuesday or a bad 2022, and still God's ultimate posture towards you and me is good. It's a good future. He has hope for you and me to trust it. It might not be anytime soon, it might not be tomorrow, but ultimately, he is bringing you and me in exile home. Home. We did two series on this. We went through the book of 1 Peter, the book of Exodus, and the primary theme was is, this is not our home. We are all exiles and pilgrims and aliens and sojourners. So that is how you're supposed to read Jeremiah 29, is that he has plans for us, good plans, good blueprints for us that ends with you and me basking in the glory of a beautiful God. Now, as encouraging as all of this is, it still doesn't tell me the, the big questions, right? The ones that keep us up at night. Like, who should we marry? Which career should we choose? These are harder questions. 
Which local church do we join? Which investments do we push our hard-earned money into? Should we invest? Who should we vote for? Why should we vote for them? Should we have kids? How many kids should we have? How do we educate those kids? Public school, homeschool, private school, co-op school? Should we move from this city to that city? What part of the city should we live in? Why should we live there? How do we handle our in-laws? Should we be vaccinated? Which vaccine should you get? How many of them? Should you get a booster? These are all questions that the Bible is just simply not going to tell you what to do, right? But they're the ones that keep us up at night. And if you're like me, you don't like making wrong decisions. I mean, when I have high value, or let's just say value decisions to make, I just want God to tell me what to do. Maybe you're like me in that. I just want God to come down when I've got two options or three options or 30 options, and they all feel about the same weight, equally good, like Ben said, or equally bad. When they're all equal-ish, I just want them to come and say, do this one. So I could just put, put the decision down and just move forward. So how do you and I discern what God's will is for us? Are we supposed to discern his will for us? Is it even possible? Can you miss it? What happens when you miss it? These are questions that the Bible is going to answer for us. And pre-Jesus, when I was a lost young man, did not love God, my decisions were made primarily with my gut. Anyone in here like that? I was a gut decision guy, right? The old gut, which is code for your instinct, intuition. And intuition even is kind of a slippery word, right? I mean, I would have well-meaning friends come alongside me with a hard decision to make, and they would always say, well, what does your gut say, right? Not helpful. Sometimes my gut says nothing. <laughs> Sometimes my gut says everything at the wrong time, and that's, that's part of the problem. Just depends on how much sleep I got or what mood I was in. I would just simply go with what felt right, even if it wasn't logical, what seemed right in the moment. Sometimes it was right. Sometimes my gut was wrong. Who knew the difference? I couldn't tell you why it was one or the other. After Jesus, I learned that my gut alone wasn't going to get the job done anymore, right? Just wasn't going to be helpful. If the mind and the heart and the desires of mankind are stained with the fall of mankind, can you really trust your intuition? I mean, is the human heart really all that trustworthy? You know, Jeremiah speaks to this again. He says in 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But your desires mingled with sin can sometimes desire noble and righteous things for noble and righteous reasons. It does sometimes. You know this. Sometimes your intuition is right. Sometimes your gut was dead on. But can you trust it? I mean, can you trust it? I find this worth exploring for us because as disciples, we are called to steward our lives differently when Jesus is our king. I mean, if you are a disciple right now, love Jesus, you are called to steward, which just means manage. You are to, to be a custodian of things differently than you were earlier because you're no longer an owner of anything. You manage things that are given to you, right? I'd learn how to manage my words differently. 
because I'm living under a different king's banner with different values and a different will. I had to steward my time differently. My money was different. I had to manage my aspirations, my imaginations differently, even my decisions. How I make a decision, it had to change. It has to change. It has to change for you as well. Not just your big decisions either. Small decisions add up. That's why we won't say high-value decisions. We'll just call them valuable decisions because they're all valuable. And how and why you decide something is just as important as whether or not it worked out. You've got to hear that. How you make a decision, why you make a decision is just as important as whether or not it worked out. You can make wrong decisions rightly. And you can make right decisions wrongly. And it matters. It matters deeply. I think it's also worth exploring because we all walked in here with some major league decisions, I'm sure, value decisions, and probably are a little bit paralyzed over not wanting to do something out of the will of God. Maybe you're stuck between two paths or two doors or a fork in the road, whatever metaphor you want to use, but you've got a little bit of fear. You're not very sure. Don't want to trust your gut. You don't have a crystal ball. Maybe this passage in Acts can lead you well because we're going to see the first moment in the young church's history where in a messy way, they're having to make some messy decisions. Remember, this is all brand new to them, right? This, This church thing. And they're having to make some value decisions that have large ramifications and it might seem kind of messy. And we get to watch them do this. How they ascertain and discern what the will of God is. Which is really all you and I try to do. So let's look at Acts 1, verse 12, and jump in. Very helpful for us. This is the word of the Lord, and it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. That's about a kilometer. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, which is the field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp be desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Okay, all right, there's a lot there. Big idea is that a unified church is replacing Judas by prayerfully casting lots. Does that sound a little weird to you, right? Casting lots, it sounds a little bit like flipping a coin. It's because it is. Does it sound biblical at all? It doesn't even sound biblical. It sounds like witchcraft almost. If you look at it that way, it's, uh, flipping a coin is great for football games to decide who's going to receive and who's going to kick off. Maybe not so great at deciding who's going to lead a church. <laughs> By the way, there are churches that this is how they still choose their pastoral board. They flip coins. And I'm not kidding. You think I'm kidding. I'm not. We do not choose pastors this way. We'll talk about that here in a minute. <laughs> but Peter, who is kind of the, uh, the first among equals, he stands up and he says, what happened to Judas over a month ago was forecast, prophesied by David over a thousand years ago. This is super cool how the Bible does this. You see, that first little psalm that he quotes is from Psalm 69, where David says, May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. Now, David is talking about his enemies in that psalm over a thousand years earlier, right? But the Holy Spirit, when inspiring this word through David, was mindful of this moment for a young church as well. Both. Both. Now, David had no clue of Judas or Peter or what the Holy Spirit would do in this moment. But this is how prophecy works in the Old Testament very often. You'll find Jesus or Paul or Peter taking an ancient text and use it for contemporary moments, okay? And we see him actually do the same thing in Psalm 109 right after that. May his days be few, Psalm 109 says. May another take his office. Again, David is talking about his enemies, Prophecy is guiding the church towards hard application right now. Basic question, who's going to take Judas's place? Who's going to do it? Well, maybe you've thought in your mind, I know I've thought when I was new to the word, why even bother? I mean, cannot 11 people get the job done? And besides, when I would read the Gospels, I always caught the feeling that maybe Judas wasn't pulling his weight. Maybe you're the same. Doesn't seem like he was on the same shelf with the other guys. It always felt like it was like 11.2 disciples, not really 12. So why not just stay tight with the original 11 and move on and get the job done? Here's the answer why they had to do this. The church was to be the fulfillment of Israel, which had 12 tribes. Okay? So having only 11 wouldn't symbolize the complete picture of the church as God's family, especially before a watching Jewish world. So next guy up. And they had a bunch to choose from. They had a good, decent pool to choose from. Many good options. That's where it sounds familiar. A hard decision with many good options. Sounds like some of the decisions we have to make, right? Ones where all the Options seem equally good or equally bad. So what do they do? They narrowed it down, found a couple guys, submitted them in prayer, and then cast lots. Again, casting lots was something that might seem a little weird to do. Back then, it was not so weird. In the Old Testament, you'll find it from time to time. In fact, whenever the 12 tribes had all the land of Israel split up, they used lots to decide who would get this piece of land and who would get that piece of land. 
So they knew that when you have two equal options, two good options, that what you could do is you could cast lots and then God would just split the hairs for them. God would, knowing everyone's heart, God would make the decision according to his own will. That's what's happening here. And that's why you have Proverbs in your Bible, Proverbs 18. Casting the lot puts an end to a dispute and decides between powerful contenders. It says that. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. They had basis for this. They had basis for this. Quick question, should we do this? Flip coins? Draw straws? When you have two powerful contenders, the same list of pros and cons, is this something that we should do? Probably not. I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. What we want to understand before we even get to how to make a decision that pleases the Lord is understand that God has a will that he's revealing to us, totally disclosed in his word through the life of Jesus. That is his revealed will. And then he has one that is secret to him. We'll call it a concealed will. Okay, One that is secret. We see this in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. This is helpful for me. When making value decisions, small or big, when making value decisions, begin with God's revealed word. Just begin with what he says. I I know this sounds obvious, right? We don't have to deliberate on some things. We don't have to to grab for God's secret will on whether we should stay married to the same person or whether or not to get drunk or, or some of these things that the Bible is already very clear on and has disclosed in plain language for people to understand. Some decisions, let's face it, they make themselves, right? They make themselves. But those aren't the ones that keep us up at night. I mean, our, our, our nature, our fallen nature anyway, is to want access to the secret things of God while skimming over or ignoring the plainly revealed things of God. That's what we want to do. Or because we are biblically malnourished, we don't even know what God has said on an item. We're totally unaware. So we're wrestling unnecessarily. Again, this is why biblical literacy is no small thing. I do have people come up with questions, and I would say often, on matters that, although heavy, are kind of already answered. Luke, what should I do about this? This one big thing in my life, it's dominating my life. I can't sleep. I can't think. What do I do about this? To which I would say, well, what do you know the Bible to say about that? (laughs) I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. I was hoping you'd tell me what the Bible says about that. I think some of us have been making decisions without referencing God's revealed word. It means you're still trusting the old gut, which is code for doing what you want doing whatever you feel like. You might be making right decisions wrongly, or worse, you're asking the wrong questions. But what about when the Bible isn't clear on God's will? Yes, you know to, let's say, give financially to the kingdom work. How much? The Bible's not clear on that, right? I mean, yes, it's clear that we partner with the church, but the Bible doesn't compel us to partner with a specific local church. How do you know that? Right? How much do we save? How much do we invest? What does reconciliation look like? I know I'm supposed to forgive and reconcile. The Bible's clear, reveals that to me. 
but should I put boundaries on some reconciliation relationships that I have? Doesn't say. Where to live in town? It's not clear. Whether you should foster or adopt, it's not clear. So what do we do when we have great biblically revealed options for us? We do what they did. We narrow it down. We narrow it down. They had a lot of great guys to choose from. They narrowed it down. So we narrow down our options by two things, kingdom values and then personal values. I'm not going to get more complicated than that, right? We probably could, but we'll just keep it very simple. Kingdom values first and then personal values, right? So let's look at Acts 121, and then we'll see exactly what we're talking about here. So one of the men... This, this is the values that they put out there. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. All right, Peter's saying, we got a bunch of great guys here, but we got to narrow it down. So we just want a guy that was kind of loyal to the scene, was a, a contributor from the time of John's baptism all the way till just the other day. They're not asking about education level, financial sustainability, Myers-Briggs. They're not asking who's the funniest guy, who's the smartest guy, who's the most competent guy. They're not doing their, – their value is very slim, and it narrowed it down to two guys, two guys. I'll bet these values took some impressive guys out of the picture. Had I been there – I don't know that I would have been so excited about Barsabbas and Matthias. I don't know. I don't know the guys. I don't know anything about them any more than what you know about them. But I'll bet, I'll bet, because I know how my heart is and I know how guys can be. I would look at the pool and go, that guy though, can we like add another rule? Can we change the rules a little bit? Because this guy over here started a few companies. And this guy over here is wicked smart. That guy over there went to school for a long time. This... I mean, I can just see myself wondering if the values should have made the decision. Some really impressive guys didn't get in. And that's what values do. Values help us say no to things that we should say no to and yes to things that we should say yes to. And you and I have been given values already. Kingdom values. We'll call them great commission values, right? We already know. We've been given a mission to enjoy Jesus and make disciple-making disciples. Now, I'm taking a bunch of passages and kind of blending them into one statement. That would be its own sermon. But that is basically our mission, to enjoy Jesus, to be content and satisfied with the person and the work of Jesus and who he is to us, and then make disciples who are making disciples. That's it. That's what, that's what we do. So we have different values to apply to our wide option of decisions. What pushes the gospel forward what is others-centered and builds community? What makes space for mission? What makes space for building community? You see, again, we're stewards, right? And the thing about managing or stewardship is it's according to somebody else's will, according to somebody else's values, or else it's just ownership. But we're not owners, are we? We're stewards. We're stewards. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations installing them into the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we've got this picture of them taking people and reaching them for Christ, installing them into this body for the whole world to see, and then teaching them the things that they were taught, which is to go and do the very same thing over and over and over again. That makes decisions. 
That should make some decisions for us. You know, I bumped into a young guy this week, and we were talking. He was just catching me up on his life. And he was telling me about how he just turned down a giant career opportunity because of a great commission commitment that he already had made. And he just did it instinctively. He didn't even think about it. He didn't wrestle all night, wring his hands, and have to fast and pray over it. He just knew the gospel and the great commission speak to this decision, and they've got fingerprints all over it. And it kind of made the decision for me. I knew what I needed to do, and I didn't even have to think about it. And I told him, I said, listen, 100 guys in the room, 99 of them are making a different decision than what you made. Impressed. Very impressed. Such a young guy for such a big league decision. But even then, if we could just be even more practical, what about when all of our options are gospel forward, are are missionally soaked, are community thoughtful? What about when all of our options are really good ones? And that's when we get to personal values, right? Your personal ones. Within the Great Commission umbrella, okay, what has God made clear of your role specifically in creation? Where have you been effective historically? Right? What, what, what weighs a bunch to you that might have a lighter weight to the person next to you? And what do they love? It's a little different than what you love, although it's all very, very good, right? You see, I'm a church planner. I've always been a church planner. Even though Legacy is not really a church plant anymore, we'll always be sending churches, right? We'll always be doing that. I, it, when, it, when the question is, do we add a service, my go-to is going to be, we start a church. But here's the thing. I also love world missions. I love them both. And they both fit firmly under the Great Commission umbrella. But when push comes to shove and my resources are squeezed, you'll find me engaged in church planting endeavors, That's where I'm historically effective. That's where I have a heart and a passion. That's just who I am. On my mission statement, on my personal values, that's embedded in all of it. It makes a lot of decisions for me. It helps me say no to things. Randy and Hillary, who are part of our church, they're heavily weighted in ministering in areas of gender and sexuality, masculinity, femininity, when it comes to the family. Listen, I love that. But it's their mission. It's their mission. When I do get to meet with pastors, I work with a bunch of pastors on their self-care, on their leadership durability, their ability to lead for sustainability. They like that, but it's my mission. That's what I mean when I say your personal values, your personal mission. With value decisions, we start with what does the Bible say, his revealed word, right? What is mission forward? How does the Great Commission speak to it? And then how do my values, my mission, my vision speak to this? And again, this helps you say no to good things when you need to say no to good things. This is also how we make decisions as a church, right? When we sit down with a hard decision as a church, like over a hire or a facility or adding a class, something that has ramifications, we start with, well, what does the Bible say? Does it lean forward when it comes to gospel, community, and mission, which are our key values? And then, is it us? Does it fit our culture? And believe it or not, that answers a lot of questions for us. That's why you're not going to find a burrito bar in the foyer. Those cost a lot of money. We'd rather spend the money somewhere else. I like burritos. There's nothing sinful about a burrito. It's just not us. 
That's why we're not going to buy a facility in Powell. I'm sure it's a cool facility, and, and you might like it. It's, it's not us. We're never going to hit delete on our missional communities. It's not simple to do that. It's just it's not us. Listen, I realize you might not have stated values. I realize you might not have gone through any exercises or taken the time to write out your mission statement or your family's mission statement. I think it'd be wise to think in that direction, though. I find it to be powerful for couples. When I do premarital counseling, that has been added to it as of recently. That when I work with couples pre-marriage, that we work through, what will be your mission statement as a couple? What are your values? You want to know why? Because that's when they start bumping into each other. And that's what you want to see as a pastor, right? I want to see some fights going on in premarital counseling because it helps you really get in there and work through some things. And one, one of them realizes that they want to go and live overseas in a hut and the other one wants to stay in the cul-de-stack and have 16 kids. You've got an issue. So it's really a great exercise to help them kind of work together. Who are we as a couple? What has God called us to do and listen, if you, I was talking to a couple pastors this morning on this, and we're putting together an addition to a class we already do called How to Change, and it will probably be something on how to build your own mission statement, how to discern what your values are and have that be the rudder and the compass for some really big league decisions that you're going to have to make and how to work backwards from those to set better goals and how to change. And so that'll be late spring if you want to go through that class. It'll be a lot of fun. If you don't want to wait, there's a book Matt Perman wrote called What's Best Next. It's really a book on productivity, but he does a fantastic job about talking about how to build your own mission and values and your vision. But at this point, what is the Bible revealed? What is a great commission value? What is a personal value? Then just submit your decision in prayer often within community, which is what we see here, right? They put forward two, and then they prayed. So we see some communal deliberation as they applied their value system to a wide pool of options, and then with unified prayer, they lifted and they submitted it to the Lord. When we submit our tough decisions to each other for feedback and then submit them to the Lord, we're signaling a humility that Jesus loves. Oh, he loves this. Does this sound weird to you when I say submit to each other, even our big decisions? Does this sound odd? Friends, you could be spending a life making spiritually valuable decisions with a secular, atheistic motivation. The reason it might sound odd is because we're groomed in an individualistic society that sounds weird to submit something like a decision that you're making to the person next to you, to your DNA group, even to the Lord. I mean, do you think that your decisions have nothing to do with the person next to you? You're wrong. They do. I mean, the decisions I make, they affect you. The big decisions that you make of value, they affect me. And we're a people of God. You know, when Kevin Gentry was preaching in our earlier days and helping me lay the foundation for what this church would be, he would use this phrase often. He would say, growth is a community endeavor. There's really no such thing as growing solo. Growth happens. The laboratory for growth, the Petri dish that causes us to grow as Christians will be community. That's what it is. Some of us have value decisions 
that we're making right now and the people that are closest to us have no clue about what those decisions are. Unwise. Unwise. Remember, you can make the right decision wrongly. You can. And when you've prayerfully submitted your best value-informed, communally-infused options, flip a coin. Just kidding, don't flip a coin. Y'all are like, wait, what's going on? Don't flip a coin, right? There's reasons we don't flip coins. Can we talk about it? We have the Holy Spirit. (laughs) First of all, we have the Holy Spirit to lead us, to bring confirmation. The church at this point in time did not have the infusion of the Holy Spirit. We will see that next week and the week after that. At this point, it did not. So this will be the last recorded time in church history that we see anyone casting a lot for anything because there's no need of it after this. There's no command in the Bible for us to cast lots, and there's no promise in the Bible that when we do cast lots, you'll get the right answer. I can promise you this, you'll be 50% right and 50% wrong, right? But again, you can make the right decision wrongly. It's not sinful to flip a coin. It's not. There are dumb times to do that. Chinese or Mexican, go ahead, flip a coin. You know, I was reminded this morning, I went on a long run once in a trail with a guy and the two of us, we got lost, totally disoriented and we came to a fork in the road. There's a trail that goes this way and a trail that goes that way and we, did, we couldn't decide what to do so we literally, it was two guys, only two guys would do something. We flipped a stick. We just flipped a stick. I found a stick, we flipped it, waited for it to point away and we went that way and listen, we were wrong. We had a 50-50% chance. We ran in a big circle, came right back to the same stick kicked it and ran on the other way and went and made it back to the vehicles. You could flip a coin. But when it is a value decision, the Lord wants you to discern. The Lord wants you to reach. He wants you to submit. He wants you to wait. He wants something different from you. The main problem with flipping a coin or casting lots for a value decision is that it doesn't require any transformative growth in you. It just requires a thumb. It doesn't require you leaning into the Lord. God wants us to stretch and reach for wisdom in a matter, to search it out through the word of God, to search it out and wait through prayer, to submit it to the person next to us. This is what it looks like. Paul told the Ephesian church that as they walk as children of light, he says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Oh, the Lord loves this. He loves it. And when you walk with this posture, of submitting these value decisions. Just choose what you want. You'll still come to the place sometimes where all the options are still good and you've gone through all of those steps. When you've gotten there, do what you want. Do what you want. If you have the posture of not my will but yours, do what you want. And then just trust the Lord with the outcome. But Luke, what if I'm wrong? If you made the wrong decision, you can have confidence that you made it rightly. That you made it rightly. I've done this. I've made a decision that I just knew that I knew that I knew that I knew. Went through all the steps in the processes that I just outlined, made it, stood behind it, and it was wrong. And it stings, right? But one thing I'm not regretting is doing that decision incorrectly. I made a wrong decision to the glory of the Lord, I guess you could say. Besides, you never know if it was the wrong decision anyway. It still might be the right direction. You never know at first glance. You might not know in this world. 
Listen, this is an overly practical teaching that I've given, a little less of a sermon, a little bit more of a class on how to please God as we make decisions. But this is a Christ-formed, Christ-shaped direction for the growing disciple. I mean, this is what I mean. If you look in, in Luke 22, and you can stay where you're at if you want, but it says, Father, if you were willing, this is Christ in his last moments, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the fighting of whose will will be supreme in a heavy decision, Jesus models for us what that looks like. You see, I think we, we imagine Jesus to have zero decisions when he was walking on earth, that he just kind of, like an automaton, walked on a track. But he made decisions. He was up all night praying over which 12 disciples would walk with him. He decided whether he would feed 5,000. He decided when to go into solitude and when to click back into busy ministry. All of this, not according to his own will, but the Father's will. The Father's will. I wonder if some of the disciples, like I said, were like me, would see Matthias and Barsabbas and think, yeah, I think, I, could do, I think we could do better than this, guys. Let's flip the coin again. I think we could do better than this, like, like kids picking teams for, for kickball or something. It's because I would want to do it according to my will, not his will. But since Adam decided to follow his own will in the garden, we all seek our own will. We just call it our gut. Just call it our gut. We don't want to submit our options. We don't want to wait. We want what we want. But the disciple's life is a life of not my will, but yours. It's a life of discerning, even when discerning is difficult. And when we miss it, it's a life of still understanding, enjoying the fact that we're still in the middle of God's heart. When we make wrong decisions, he doesn't drop us. He doesn't leave us. That's the gospel for decision makers. We're free to make the wrong decisions. Totally free. When we make a decision that is informed by God's revealed will, values, community, prayer, and we make the wrong decision, he doesn't, he doesn't drop us. He doesn't drop us. We're also free from the bondage of our own will. And it is a bondage. It's a heavy slavery for us to follow our own will, our own intuition all the time. We're free from that because we know the depth of God's love for us and how he knows the depth of our days. And he has a plan for us. And this plan is good and it is beautiful and it is thoughtful and it is graceful and it is merciful. And how do we know this? He proved it. He came to us according to his plan, a plan laid out from days of ancient past. It was laid out from the very beginning that Christ would come. That's how we know. He came to rescue us, bad decision makers. He came to rescue people that made selfish decisions for selfish reasons. Listen, if you are listening at home or you're here and you would say, I do not love Jesus, let me just say that God has a plainly revealed plan for all of humanity. It's revealed. It's disclosed. He came to earth to rescue those who live according to their own will. A people who have spent all their days from birth on saying, not your will, but mine. Not anyone's will, 
but mine. That's who he comes for. He finds us making horrible messes of our lives for selfish reasons, and he loves us deeply at his own cost. That's what the sight of the cross is. He bled out to bring a righteousness to us while he collects our own righteousness and puts it on himself. It's beautiful. And this is what it requires of us because the blood is on our hands as we are far from Christ. It's the moment where we say, no longer my will but yours be done. And then God rescues us, rescues us and brings us to himself. And maybe this is you today. Maybe today could be a big decision for you according to God's disclosed plan you can make the most important decision of your life. And that is to die to your own will and to say unto your will from here and forevermore. And for the rest of us, there's room to repent. Even as I wrote this, I, had, I have to repent sometimes for asking the wrong questions. It sounds a lot like this. What about me? What about me? What about me? I have to repent for being a bad steward for letting my own fallen desire rule my decisions, for being impatient with God's timing. Man, I'm an impatient guy. I didn't realize this until here recently, how impatient I was. I would pray for something and then immediately be looking for an answer. Like if you were to send an email just waiting and hitting refresh, looking for a response, looking for a response. That's not really waiting. Maybe even repenting for ignoring what the Bible has already said. Has already been very clear on. Some of us might be making decisions right now. We know it's a bad decision and we're doing it anyway. Man, you need to repent for saying, not your will, but mine. 